Today we have our panelists, Tom Hickey and Skinder Derty, and I'm Barbara Strain. And I'm pleased to introduce Salen Lucas, the Director of Design and Development at the Global Center for Medical Innovation, GCMI. And I want to welcome everybody to this podcast of the MedTechSperts MedTech Business Academy. So Salen, why don't you tell us a little bit about GCMI uh, for the audience who may not be familiar? Yeah, thanks, Barbara. And uh, thanks for having me on the show today. Uh, so GCMI, the Global Center for Medical Innovation, is a nonprofit affiliate of Georgia Tech in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, we're, we're a fee-for-service consulting group of biomedical engineers, industrial designers, project managers, and we help innovators uh, develop medical devices um, all the way from napkin sketch all the way through formal product development, design verification, validation testing, and commercialization. Well, great. So I, I know in, in prep for this, we understand that you've been in lots of different parts of the med device industry and things. So how did you get to GCMI? Yeah, so I, I've been at a lot of different medical device companies. I've been in the industry for over 18 years now. I got to work at a lot of big companies. Um, I always wanted to work at a startup company. Uh, so back in 2018, I joined a startup company um, and I got, got in early on that uh, uh, process and got to go through all phases from, from napkin sketch through uh, commercialization. And uh, it, was, it was a great exit. Uh, the company actually ended up getting bought uh, for 300 million, and uh, and so it, it was just such a great experience. But you know, startups have uh, some uncertainty to them, and so I was looking for something a little bit more stable. And um, and so my family in Atlanta, and I actually just uh, started searching for the top design firms in Atlanta. And lo and behold, came across GCMI and then was uh, really excited when I found out that it's part of Georgia Tech because we get to, to work on some really exciting new technology that's coming out of, of Georgia Tech's uh, professor's labs. And so, um, yeah, I called them up and luckily there was an opening. It wasn't even posted. They had just had somebody leave and the, kind of the stars aligned and I was able to join GCMI. And what, what was the uh, technology that you, uh, you exited? from in that, that company? Yeah, so it's a laparoscopic uh, sleeve gastrectomy stapler. Um, so that's a, a, a very high volume procedure and thus why there was so much um, attention for that and why the investors were so excited to, to get a piece of that technology. How long did it take the company to go from inception to exit? Um, well, so they started off, I think, in 2015 timeframe. Um, so it's three years before I joined. Um, they wanted to prime the market. So a stapler is a very complex device. It takes a lot of capital, a lot of time to get to market and to compete against Medtronic and J&J. &J. Um, so initially they started with a, 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 a reusable instrument. And so it was a lot easier to get that um, to market. That was a pretty easy 510K um, device. And so they were able to get their foot in the door and start getting surgeons using that clamp with the existing products. 
And then while they were able to, to generate some small revenue with that and make inroads, um, you know, with key opinion leaders throughout the market, then we were developing the more complicated um, uh, stapler. And then with that, we had to have a balloon catheter and a new trocar. And so it was a system with a, a lot of components and a, a lot of development time. So we, I got then involved in 2018 and we um, developed that through to 2021. I think it was when we got the um, FDA approval and started selling. And then um, the acquisition was in 2022, I think. So, Salem, this is Tom. It's really interesting to hear that story, you know, taking it from an innovator's perspective, right? Because we all talk to a lot of innovators and, you know, especially at the startup phase, they think like, well, we've got to have our final product, right? And it's got to be like this giant aha moment. And the the story you tell is interesting because you started out rather modestly, if you will, with something that you could easily manage. And the market wasn't, you know, a gajillion dollars. It was a, a more finite market. but things evolved, right? It was, it sounds like kind of almost a, an evolution, you know, versus a aha moment. Is, is that what you found in, in, you know, how were you able to apply that for innovators today? Uh, yeah, it definitely was that. And, and I um, like to tell that story because I think it is really important for um, innovators to think about like, how can you get to market as fast as possible? Oftentimes they have all these bells and whistles that they want to attach on. Um, as we know, there's right now, you know, the hot thing is sensors and electronics and having an app and then, um, and then having uh, complex AI algorithms and everything's in the cloud. It's great, but it takes a lot of time to get to make all of that happen. You have to have a lot of data to make those claims. So we really stress the importance of keep it simple to begin with. And then you can start collecting data, making those um, key connections and like learning from your users because you'll always learn like once you, you know, your initial product is rarely the, the end all. You'll always come up with ways to improve it. So try to find the easiest way to get to market so you can start generating cash flow and then getting more users, getting more feedback and then, you know, incrementally improve your product. Yeah, so Salen, you, you strike me as a guy that doesn't make many mistakes, but let's just assume that you are human for a second and <laughs> you did make some mistakes in that former company. What are some of those key things that you impart upon your your current clients and the cohort that you work with now taking from those early mistakes that you say, don't do this? <laughs> um, working with um, suppliers and vendors um, can be a really tricky um, minefield to navigate. Um, I think we know that um, everybody wants to sell you on what they can do and then what they may not have ever done before but think they can do. And so um, at, at that company, we learned the lesson of one of the suppliers had never done uh, full contract manufacturing. They had been like component suppliers. And so it was an opportunity for them to get into um, final assembly. Um, and as a startup company, we were attracted to their, their lower price point. And so we went with them. They said, oh, you know, we'll be able to make this part for X dollars. And then, and for, you know, so much money, let's say it was around, uh, I don't want to get into the specifics, but um, a, a good chunk of money. And then nine months later, it, you know, it took a lot more money. And then the the, the specific 
uh, cost of goods sold was nearly triple what they said it was originally going to be. And so for startup companies, I mean, that's really hard to swallow. I mean, you've already put in so much money into this and you don't have a lot of power um, against these um, suppliers when you're in that small like startup scene. So I would really urge people to take your time in selecting suppliers and and doing thorough due diligence and um, and really trying to tease out what is their core competency versus what is something that they're trying to dabble in or they'd like to get into. Because oftentimes you'll be the guinea pig um, tr- if you if you're like allowing them to to get into something they've never done before, and there there will be growing pains. So you talked a little bit about the affiliation of GCMI with Georgia Tech. So I would imagine that you have a variety of some research and things going on and and various professors and others might say, hey, I have this great thing. What do you do with that? What's the process? Uh, Yes, we do. We work with a lot of Georgia Tech professors and get to work on a lot of really exciting technologies. Um, uh, So GCMI was founded because uh, Georgia Tech is a state school cannot hold liability insurance um, to have devices that are for clinical trials, first in human um, trials. Um, So that's why we are set up as a separate entity. We hold uh, liability insurance. We have our own quality management system. So we are compliant with FDA and ISO regulations. Um, And so the process is you know, we we try to do as much outreach as possible and um, get our name out there and 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 help as many people as possible. So, um, you know, people, uh, innovators that have ideas, then they come to us and we uh, we're really flexible. It kind of depends on what stage they're in um, and how we can help them. So, what sort of like feasibility, sort of, or whatever uh, sort of uh, explanation you want to make is. How do you know that it's a good fit and the the innovator is on the right track and things? Yeah, so so we do formal product development through uh, the kind of typical phase one through five, which is very expensive formal product development. Um, But in order to help people get started for a lot less money, we started what we call uh, phase zero. Uh, Oftentimes, people just call it feasibility work or a project charter. Um, But but that's where Oftentimes when people come to us, they just want a prototype and and a prototype is very helpful, but we believe in a holistic approach that's not just the prototype, but also making sure to consider the regulatory path, the clinical need, um, making sure that there is a market there, like how are you going to be reimbursed, what's the reimbursement strategy, and then how how are you going to manufacture it, what's the supply chain look like. So going through that, from a holistic approach to begin with, really kind of teases out a lot of the issues that if you just jumped right into product development that you may miss. And so that's that's our approach to evaluate um, new ideas and to help de-risk projects and, and, and get innovators um, uh, prepared to go into formal product development and to really, quite frankly, decide whether or not this current idea makes sense. I mean, a lot of times we have people that, that we share our feedback with and then realize this might not be the best idea to go with. But typically, innovators have many more ideas uh, in the bullpen. And so, you know, it's it's good to tease out the, the early ones and make sure 
that you're picking the right one before you go into the very costly formal product development phase. So, Salen, I wanted to uh, that, thank you for that overview. I want to tie into that a little bit, uh, kind of in that next step. Um, with you know, in the investor community these days, especially in med devices, become very uh, choosy. Let's use that term. So, are you finding that because you're doing that, you know, from phase zero to phase five step, right? And you've got that process. Do you have an ecosystem investors that you find are tied into that and and kind of more supportive because they know that structure is there? Uh, we do, and and what we've really found is that most uh, investors do not want to get involved really far along, and so preferably it's a um, FDA approval, it's a five ten k. You've got your PMA that's already approved, and you're on the market, and so that is a huge valley of death to go from mm-hmm. your concept and then all of the work that's required. Um, to do all your design verification, validation, testing, and to get a full DHF created, submitted to the FDA. Um, but but that's uh, from from all the different investors that I've spoken with. It seems like that's the majority of them want um, all of that uh, effort to have been done to prove that it can be made and that it's actually going to be approved um, and on the market and generating some revenue. Some some. Um, like market verification has has been done before a, a large acquisition, and that that really ties in perfectly to like my experience with my previous startup company. That's how it went. Um, we had to have a clinical trial, had to get a five ten k, and then I had had to have many users on board using it on a on a regular basis before the large acquisition occurred. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. I would think that also just, you know, from your own experience, starting with that, you know, minimally viable product and then building out, right? It, it, it's, you've got to have a lot of communication, attracting new investors as you're going along that path, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah and I mean, um, for, for that uh, group, we had uh, angel investors to begin with, and then a series A, and then a series B raised, um, as there was significant uh, funding required for the tooling to mass produce a stapler uh, requires a lot of investment. The tooling is very expensive. Um, and then the sales force, um, in order to, to get a dedicated sales force that's able to go out there um, and break doors down and compete and get, you know, get the, get the um, early usage, um, it, that takes a lot of capital. For sure. So building on that, you referenced in your opening that you also help companies through the commercialization phases. Help us understand what do you do in that regard? Well, at GCMI, um, our focus is more on the design and development phase. And so our our commercialization focus is more on making the device that's uh, designed for manufacturability, setting up contract manufacturers, making sure that all of the processes have been validated um, and that the device is ready to be commercialized. we we don't we don't have um, like dedicated sales force or like a like a like sales marketing group. Uh, we're more more focused on the engineering aspect. Okay. So what's like that readiness sort of spot? That's the sweet spot. So probably in your experience, and and even since you've been at GCMI, do you have any like one or two sort of case studies that might give an example of what not to do? 
or a, a best practice from someone who comes to you right out of the box? Yeah, definitely. So um, really the, the reason for why GCMI created the phase zero program is because of a client that we had that they came in, was very anxious to get to market as fast as possible um, and had had funding readily available and pushed for, push forward right to building product um, for official design verification testing, which requires usually around 30 to 60 pieces, um, if not hundreds, uh, depending on the risk level. And so that's a lot of money required just to make those parts, do all that testing. Um, but after that testing wrapped up, uh, the team started doing some investigating uh, like patent searches and discovered a, a competing patent that the innovator was unaware of. Um, and it was really a, 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 just a heart-wrenching story because come to find out they had invested a lot of their 401k and their life savings mm -hmm. into this idea. And it wasn't completely over with. Um, we were able to uh, redesign the product, but they did have to take many steps back, redo the testing. So a, a lot of time and money was lost in that process. Um, so, so out of that um, lesson learned was really us pushing our clients, educating them on the risks that you take when you kind of jump right into formal product development. And that's why we wanted to create the phase zero program, take this holistic approach and stress the importance of doing a uh, proper landscape review of the intellectual property and understand you know, who's on the market, what are the main claims of your competitors, um, and to ensure that you're designing it properly to avoid those, those conflicts with other patents and to make sure that you, you know, are really in a strong position um, and you've de-risked as, as best as possible before entering into to formal product development. Yeah, yeah that's an in interesting story. And, and I want to build on that for a second. In other industries, I feel like uh, talking to your customers and doing a target, mar uh, a target market assessment is kind of part and parcel with the design and development process. Yet, I feel like in med tech, surprisingly, it is not always a standard uh, part of the SOP, right? It's some people do it, others don't. Some people talk to one person and believe they've gotten all the answers they want. And other people, especially when they're innovators, sometimes think that they have all the answers. Why do you think med tech and all that rides on and the big dollar value of investment, why is it a voice of customer activity just part of the SOP in the design and development process? I think it should be. I think it's so crucial. Um, I think it happens, I wouldn't say all the time, but just like I think, I think it it happens more so with um, clinician and inventors. Um, I think that they are so, they have such expertise and they have perfected their technique. Um, and then sometimes I think they're blinded by thinking that everybody is doing the same technique that they are doing. And so um, that's what I think is a real crucial part of the process is for them to get the tough feedback early on and to, to find that if you're, if you're in a group of people that everybody is telling you, it's great, it's great, it's great. I think you need to find some other um, sources of truth and, and find those people that um, are willing to tell you some of the things that, that you might be blindsided by. So how do you tell people their baby's ugly? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, we <laughs> we try to to st- to stick with the facts. Um, so I mean, I think we we tend to try to um, base our opinions on as much like research as possible. So staying grounded in in research, um, and then you know going out and getting opinions from many different um, um, subspecialties, and then collecting all of those opinions and showing that it's not. Not us per se. That's <laughs> telling you, um, but it's hey, we've gone out and we've we've found some other opinions that you should be aware of, and yeah. and it's important to to be able to pivot, you know, early on and get that feedback and and be open to it and adjust it accordingly. The collective they is always the best way to go about telling somebody they're ugly. I didn't say it; they said it. They exactly. Really, I got it. Okay. <laughs> they said it. Yes. <laughs> So, so you kind of told a, a story about physicians where they they kind of have blinders on. On the other hand, it's really important to get e- either that voice the customer like Skinder was talking about or physicians involved early on. And so uh, they can help sort of vet sort of the what's really going on. Oh, for sure. And luckily at GCMI, uh, we have Dr. Emily Blum, who's our medical director. Um, she's fantastic. She uh, operates two days a week, and but then she works for us two days a week. Um, and so she is so excited about, um, you know, helping support innovative new medical device technologies. And so um, she is a great resource for our team. Um, and so we can run past, um, you know, ideas on the clinical workflow uh, and the clinical need. And, and then she um, oftentimes has experience with, with a wide variety of, of devices, but then also she can connect us with others um, in the industry that, um, that are you know, willing to give feedback on, on new concepts. And, and I think it's also important to point out that it shouldn't just be like an upfront phase zero, phase one, um, and then you're done. I think it's important to have um, clinician involvement throughout the project. Um, from a risk analysis perspective, um, and then just as you're making like pivots and changes throughout, it's always really crucial to to ground those decisions um, with the clinical expertise um, on your team. Yeah, getting that immersion is really important, right? And uh, you know, we often talk about keeping your head on the swivel, right? So you you get in there, you're working. Um, you know, I've talked to a couple of even IP, um, you know, um, practitioners that you know have their lawyers going to the OR, right, to really pay attention, you know, because they find new applications, you know. So um, that's just kind of an, an interesting thing. But you know, to your point, keeping you know watching out. Because you know we've got competitors coming in, and and new techniques that might help with you know one small change can really open up maybe even a whole new market. Uh, is is that some of what you see? Definitely, yeah, yeah. I like the analogy. Uh, keep your head on a swivel because you never know where the attacks are going to be coming from, mm-hmm. um, and and you can be blindsided so easily when you're just like you you've made the plan and now you're executing, and then you kind of take your eye off the ball. And so it is um, really crucial to have that kind of built into your process um, to circle back and be touching on the the different key aspects 
um, to make sure that you don't have, you know, you just completely lost track of the competition or that the, you know, technique has changed or you know, any number of things. So I get it straight in my head. You talked about the affiliation with Georgia Tech and things, but can anyone come to GCMI and say, I need your services and how do I contract with you and that sort of thing? Yeah. Uh, great question. Thanks for clarifying that. Yes. Uh, yeah, we can work for anybody. So uh, we, we kind of have like a 50-50 split. Um, so we do uh, a lot of work with Georgia Tech, but we also do a lot of work with um, a wide variety of uh, um, startup companies, um, mo mostly in the Southeast, but um, but we do have clients around the country and around the world. Great. And, and one other thing while I'm on that tact is do you get others than just new startups? For example, if there's an established company, they've do, been doing business for quite a while, but they have a need for your engineers or your labs or some sort of services. So could they also? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. We've had, we've had, we've had several um, medium sized to large companies where uh, they just don't have the bandwidth anymore. And they're they're They've, used up all of their their engineering resources and so they come to us to take on some of the projects that they don't have time to get to so yeah we like i said we have a an established quality management system um, that can be customized so we can create documents that fit into an existing qms system um, or we can use our own and then we can customize it um, to fit into their uh their their specific company what is the uh, what's the corner that you see people cutting the most? Hmm, that is a good question. Let me think about that. Um, well, I think a lot of times people try to cut um, biocompatibility, where they'll say, "Look, I'm using this standard uh, polyethylene." Uh, and oh, that polyethylene has been used forever. That that is like so easy. Like every device has that. We don't need to do it. We'll just do a justification. Um, I would I would warn people about doing that because for an FDA um, reviewer, it's a very easy check the box, and it's too easy for them to just say, "Nope, the regs say you have to do it. You haven't done it, and you have to do it." Um, they will commonly say. Um, yes, it's the same polymer, but you know when you're making an injection molding, there could be um, mold release chemicals that are used, and that's what they're worried about leaching out of uh, the polymer. So especially if you're using a plastic device, um, it's going to be very hard for you to justify why the why the FDA should allow you to not have to do biocompatibility. And so that you know I've, I've seen it several times where, the team thought they had a strong justification for it. And it's just really hard to argue that with FDA. Um, unless you have the, the supplier would have to have a master file on record with the FDA where they have done biocompatibility testing and they have provided those results to the FDA. Most of the time people haven't done that. And so unless you have the reports in hand that you can include, it, it won't count. And so that then will just be a delay where they'll they'll say, hey, you need to get back with us in 180 days, so you'll have to go back and make the parts and do the testing and pay 
somewhere between twenty-five dollars and $50,000 for biocompatibility testing, execute the testing, and then resubmit. So it, it, it will just be a delay and an added cost um, to the project. Sort of like your homework, right? Uh, when you were in school. <laughs> Uh -huh. that's, that's great. Um, so I know that um, you probably have like 3D printing and a variety of things. What do you see sort of on the rise? You know, more 3D printing. You talked about sensors earlier. And I think um, Skinder had brought up at one point um, when we were just generally talking before we went on air about that shift from mechanical sort of parts and things to digital parts. So what have you kind of seen over your career? How are things going today? <laughs> yeah, you're right, spot on. It's definitely uh, rapidly changing from, um, you know, mostly mechanical to electromechanical um, devices. Almost every new uh, product concept that comes to us um, includes some kind of sensor. Um, so I think it's it's really important to get clear in your mind as an innovator um, how you're going to get to market with, with all these uh, new technologies included. So sensors, for example, um, are going to require additional electrical safety testing. So it can be done. It just is more expensive. So what we often um, tell our clients is that if you can start with a rather simple mechanical device and get to market, um, we, we would suggest doing that first so you don't have to pay for expensive electronics testing. Get, get into the market, start generating some cash flow, and then start getting feedback from the users. But then you can you know, use that cash, get sensors in, uh, in, included in the design, start gathering data. The next thing that people like to do is jump right to a um, AI algorithm. So we kind of warn against that as well. I think it's really smart to use your sensor initially to just gather data. Um, still allow the surgeons to make clinical decisions in their best you know, judgment, um, but with the knowledge that in the long run, you may be intending to gather that data and then be able to interpret it, make a diagnosis, but know that in order to make those claims is gonna most likely require a, a clinical trial. It's gonna require many years and potentially millions of dollars to be able to, to back those claims up. So uh, again, it's, it's easier to start with a more simple device to begin with um, in order to get into the market quicker and, and, and generate traction. How many people do you think really know what AI is? <laughs> a low percentage it's a very low percentage right the, <laughs> the I mean, it's, the most off, it it's the most off-used term right now in probably 2023 yeah I'm, I'm i'm my gut tells me that of the people that use it it's single digit percentages of those that actually know what it means yeah yeah and i mean i think uh from from a couple of recent conferences that i went to um, where they're talking, it's just, it's everywhere. Everyone's talking about it. I think one of my big concerns with the, with the AI products that have been, recently been released is, um, you know, they're only as good currently as what they've been trained on. 
And so typically once they're released into a larger population, um, the accuracy goes down significantly. And so I think that there, that we need a, a healthy uh, pause uh, or just a uh, um, kind of slow down on the adoption of, of, uh, of the AI um, until it's been proven in larger populations. Which is a challenge from an inventor and an innovator standpoint, because, you know, just following the the capital dollars, that's where all the VCs and PEs are are putting their money right now. Uh, It's, you know, I mean, you almost have to say I have a peanut butter jelly sandwich with AI just to get a look, right? (laughs) Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's in everything right now. Yeah. 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 It's amazing. Yeah. So we so, have a couple of minutes left. So we want to go around the horn with maybe uh, Tom Skinder, and then we'll throw it to Salem last. Uh, final questions or uh, comments? Yeah. Um, first of all, Salem, thank you. I've enjoyed the conversation and your input today. Um, I'm just kind of curious, r- real quick, um, about you know sometimes you know an innovator will have something that might not be quite ready um have you had much experience with something that was like not ready for a market today sat on the shelf for a couple of years and then you're able to bring it back um is that something that you've seen very often uh that's a great question um i mean in my mind i think i i think we've all heard of those instances um, I, I personally have not run into that. Um, mm-hmm. but I mean, I think it, it definitely can happen. I mean, I know that there's times where you're just, just so far, um, ahead of the curve. Um, yeah. so I, me personally, it's not med device related, but I, I was on another startup at one point and I was going to do a, an app for tailgating at, at, um, at big <laughs> football games. And it was okay. back in 2014 and we built a prototype. We were so excited about it. And then we went to a game and the cell towers wouldn't work. It, it was the, the uh, 5G hadn't come out. And it was, if you remember at that time period, you could barely send text messages. Calls would fail. The infrastructure was just like not there. Um, so that's when it comes to mind for me where it's like, had, you know, we didn't come back to it. But like it, sometimes the infrastructure is just not there. And so it's good to understand that and be able to pivot and realize that this, the time is just not right. Wait until the big companies have come in, they've built the the, um, the infrastructure, they've laid down the tracks, and then you can come back and revisit your idea. Yeah, that's actually a good one. Um, Cause I had heard, uh, I had a, a talk to somebody that did something for, you know, using uh, Wi-Fi in extended care facilities and it worked great right up to the point they realized you know this was back in the day that none of the extended care facilities had wi-fi you know, <laughs> you know so <laughs> the timing's everything yeah for sure skinder last question yeah. or comment? no i mean i think my big takeaway is uh you know from what there, there's a lot of people cutting corners uh and and some of those corners get you know you screw it up and i, I always like to liken it to the clark biswold uh, type of dynamic, right? Clark spent all that time framing his house, having all those lights put up, and he forgot to turn on the switch. Uh, and he kicked the hell out of some reindeer and some Santa Claus along the way out of frustration, <laughs> right? And he, meanwhile, it was the simplest thing, right? And I think that's the same thing that we look at as we look at those that are trying to develop in this very complex, highly regulated industry. 
Um, they, they take for granted, like you said, the biocompatibility testing, they take for granted some of those other aspects and either believe that they know it or they know better, um, than everybody else. And I think that's how we get into a lot of trouble. So the thing I'd like to really impart from sailing's insight to the audience is don't be Clark Oswald. <laughs> so everybody's going to go out now and sort of, uh, stream the movie, right. So they can. <laughs> feel like they're in the know well I mean, like, in, a, in a couple months it'll be on like 80 times so yeah i know 80 times. <laughs> yeah so my general takeaway was that whole de-risking part uh, biocompatibility is also another thing that i really and when you said that i just really perked up but uh, you said so many things that people don't realize that they need to go through and what that really looks like and um I think that de-risking part, and you always kept mentioning the quality system, quality management system, and I don't think people fully understand what that is either, but it says it right up front in FDA over and over and over again. So you brought up some great points, and, and you all are doing some great work. So uh, any last things you want to say, Salem, before we sign off? Oh, well, just thanks again for having me on. I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, I guess I just kind of wanted to go along with what you were all saying there. What we commonly tell our clients is I know that they're very anxious to get going as fast as possible. But what we commonly tell them is it's it's actually helpful to slow down in order to be able to speed up in the near future. Slow down, pump the brakes, put together a, a detailed plan and you know, from, from our experience, the holistic approach with the phase zero is really a great way to de-risk it and make sure that you're taking into account not just the design of it, but the regulatory path, the legal aspects, the business part of it. It all fits together um, and it's such a big investment. You wanna make sure that you're picking the right product that you're gonna go um, move forward with. Well, great. Well, thanks to Tom and Skinder for their great questions and Salen for all your uh, insights. And audience, please listen to us on our stations. And thank you very much.